gosh, it's getting to be uh, 15, 18 years since I started working in recovery. And uh, I didn't have a recovery background when I first started working in recovery. I just kind of fell in love with the recovery community. But I remember the first AA meeting that I was invited to. And it was our Bubba that invited me, and, and he was speaking. And it was a mixed meeting, open meeting, the whole thing. And I remember after Bubba spoke and they had the sharing section, this old-timer stands up, and he says, I am so grateful to be an alcoholic. And my jaw kind of went down on my chest. And it's just like, what? How in the world could this possibly be? How would you be grateful for something like that? And as he spoke more, I started to understand what he was talking about. I still didn't quite, uh, you know, fit the groove that I was in, but... What he was basically talking about is that his alcoholism created the crisis in his life that was painful enough, traumatic enough, and strong enough to finally kick him into becoming serious about his life, serious about finding what really mattered, serious about doing the internal work that it took for him to be the man that he was at that moment. Recovered, more balanced, you know, more sane, <laughs> more able to make decisions that would positively affect everyone in his blast zone. And when you look back at a moment like that, a moment of recovery, a moment of something, I like to call them hinge moments. It's a moment in your life where your trajectory is going this way, and then it hits this point, and it just angles off, and it takes another trajectory. It's a hinge, and it moves in a complete... It's kind of like those, you know, those uh, time travel movies where they talk about, we ended up on an alternate timeline. And so what you actually end up doing, there is this moment that creates this break, creates this clarity, creates this desire, I suppose, to move into an alternate timeline. I want you to think about that for a second. Do you have moments in your life that are hinge moments? Can you look back and say that there was something that was painful enough, traumatic enough, that changed your direction? And you can see the shape of that direction and that change. I hope that you do. I know I do. Actually, I got a couple of them. But the, the most profound one, of course, was the breakup of my first marriage. And that just stripped away everything that I thought I knew about myself. It even stripped away what was left of my identity as a Catholic because Catholics don't get divorced. You know, what did Willie Allen say? They're like pigeons. You know, pigeons and Catholics are mated for life. This stripped me in such a way that I had to completely reassess everything about myself. And though I would never <laughs> wish divorce on my absolute worst enemy, and I regret the pain that I caused, still I can say that I am grateful for that experience because it created the necessary pain that made me reevaluate everything that I was doing and not doing. Made me reevaluate re the way that I was living my life just on the surface of things, on the periphery of things, and had to make a different choice if I wanted to keep breathing. And this divorce was not just in terms of a change of address or a change in marital status. It stripped me of everything in such a way that I had to find a fundamentally different way to live my life. And that's exactly what happened. It is the path that took me to sit in this stool with you right now. I hope that you can look back and see that there are moments in your life 
And there's a commonality to these moments. And one of them is that we only seem to be able to see them in retrospect, you know? Wouldn't it be nice if we could see them while they were happening so we can kind of help them along? But most of the time, we don't see that. We're just involved in the pain so much, and the pain, I had no idea I was in a hinge moment 30 years ago, 34 years ago, whatever it's been now. I just knew that I was hurting so much, I needed the hurting to stop. I needed to find a different way to understand my life. If we could, if there was a way that we could see the hinge moments as they're happening, to see what's going on in real time, wouldn't it be nice to be able to recognize that so that we could help it help, it help us make the next choices, take the next steps, and most importantly, to help us see the purpose in the pain? If we don't see purpose in pain, it's just suffering. That's when we get resentful. That's when we get angry. That's when we feel like a cosmic victim. But as soon as we can see purpose in the pain, everything changes. Viktor Frankl has a great story in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. If you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, he's one of the fathers of modern psychology, but he was also a Jew that survived Auschwitz when the rest of his family did not. And he had to find a way to get through that trauma, to get through that pain. And what he came up with was logotherapy. It was a whole different branch of psychology that said that the main thing that we as humans are driving for is meaning. You know, that's it. Not anything else, but meaning is what we really need as human beings. But he tells a story in his practice in Vienna where an elderly gentleman who was a physician himself comes in and sits down to counsel with him and just says that you know, his wife had died several years before and he just couldn't, couldn't get over it. He couldn't get over the grief. And he's expressing to him how much it hurts and what he's going through as he tries to process this. And Franco finally stops him and says, what would it have been like if you died first and she survived you? Oh, it would have been terrible. She would have had the hardest time trying to adjust and do this and do that. And he says, so really, by you surviving her, you spared her all of that pain and grief. And he stopped and he thought about it for a second, got up, put on his hat, put on his coat, walked out, and never came back. <laughs> Not good for business, but you get the point. As soon as he could see the purpose in the pain, that what he was suffering spared his beloved wife from having to suffer that, he could do it. He could get through it. He could make it work. I've been doing a lot of counseling lately. As you can probably imagine, with everything that's going on out there in the world, there's a lot of people who are dealing with things that they don't quite know how to handle. And there have been patterns in the people that I'm talking to in terms of what they're going through, the symptoms and the, the issues that they're facing. And it's become kind of, for me, a collective shape uh, of, of the journey, a collective shape of the experience that we're all having as we're trying to get through this and we're talking to each other. And I'm finding myself saying pretty much the same things over and over again to the people that I'm talking to. And so I thought maybe it was worth saying a few of those things here today for all of us. If you think about it, what we're having right now is a collective hinge moment. The world is angling off into an alternate timeline. It's angling off into a new direction. We had nothing to say about it. It wasn't our choice. It's just happening despite everything that we would like. And we have this sense, we understand that the world that we knew is now gone. And the fear underneath is, 
whether it's coming back again in any kind of recognizable form, how much of it is coming back, and of course, when is it coming back. But all we know is that the familiar world that we knew that we had some security in, even if it was difficult for us at the time, that's gone, and that's difficult for us to face. Now, you probably hear over and over again, we're all in this together, right? We're all in the same boat. That creates quite a response in some people because the truth of the matter is we're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm, as I've heard it said, but we're not in the same boat. Because however this has affected your personal world, it's affected the world at large in a uniform way, in a consistent way. But how has it affected your personal world? That's what's going to make the difference of how you're dealing with this and how you're processing this. That's what we're really talking about. If your personal world has changed dramatically because of what's going on, then you're feeling a loss. That's going to feel like a death, a loss of your lifestyle, a loss of whatever it is, and you're grieving over this. And we don't really think of sometimes the depression or the stress or the anger that we're going through because of what's happening in our personal lives and in the, life, in the world out there as grief, but it absolutely is grief. What are the stages of grief? Do you remember? Well, there's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining. There's depression. I'm hitting some of the big three right there. What people are coming to me and what is presenting in their lives is anger, resentment, depression, stress, fear, all of these things. And to put your finger right on it is to say, I'm grieving the loss of my life. But there are a lot of people, let's say they are older and they're retired. This hasn't really affected them that much. Their income is coming in still. Their lives are pretty much the same. Maybe they had a church and they don't have a church anymore. That may affect them. Extended family they can't see anymore. You know, Maybe their family can't come see them because they're elderly and they don't want to infect them. So there are some things. But it hasn't hit them at the same level that someone who's lost their job. Someone whose kids can't go to school, and now they have to be packed in, and they're trying to homeschool in, you know, in a heartbeat when they have no experience with it, and the schools are not much help. Maybe they don't have computers. Maybe they have multiple kids, and they don't have a screen for every child. How is that supposed to work exactly? Maybe they're still working, and the kids are at home trying to do homeschooling, and that's creating stress. For so many people, they're in different boats, even though we're going through the same storm, and we have to recognize that. I know some people who are they still, even after five, six months now, they're kind of celebrating it because, you know, they're letting their interior introvert come out and play, and it's really okay for them. But that's not the experience of everybody. If your personal world has really changed as a result of this pandemic and any of the social unrest, then you are going to be going through some kind of grieving process. But even though the world itself is in a hinge moment, the question to ask yourself is, are you, are we, participating in that hinge moment? Are we finding purpose in our own pain? Or is it just pain that we are resisting, that we are angry about, that are becoming resentful about? Whether we are participating in the hinge moment that we're having collectively depends on our response to everything that's going on around us. 
It's been a while since I've done my rant on the hero's journey, and so I thought maybe this would be a good time because I find myself telling a lot of people about it who don't know anything about the hero's journey. So if you've never heard of the hero's journey before, it's basically a motif that appears in all the world's literature, going back as far as we possibly can. I'm sure it was in oral tradition when we were still painting on cave walls. But when we go back to the stories that we have been telling ourselves for four to 5,000 years, Joseph Campbell, back in the 50s, noticed that there was one story that we just kept telling ourselves over and over again. He called it the monomyth. And the idea was that there was a shape to the journey that always was the same. And you've seen it hundreds of times in books that you've read and movies that you've seen, plays that you've gone to. And it is a story that I think is told perfectly in Dorothy Gale and the Wizard of Oz. And so what happens is the hero or the heroine wakes up in their familiar world with which they are completely comfortable and feeling secure or have some distaste for, you know, but at least it's something that they understand. They understand the rules. They understand the players. And something wounds them. Something kicks them out. Maybe the world is pulled away from them by circumstances they can't control, kind of like us with the pandemic. Or maybe in Dorothy Gale's case, we don't know her backstory, but we know that she's not happy where she is. She's not living with her parents. We know nothing about her parents. She's living with her aunt and her uncle in black and white Kansas. She's no good on a farm. (laughs) She's worthless on a farm. She doesn't like farm work. And she spends her day dreaming about something over the rainbow that is going to fulfill her if she could just get there over the rainbow. And then there's the incident with her dog. The dog is going to be taken away from her, so she runs away, but she only gets as far as Professor Marvel. He talks her into going back, but then the twister takes her to Oz, and she has no choice in the matter. And when she opens that door on Technicolor Oz, you know, the munchkin land, everything is different. Everything has changed. This is a world that she doesn't understand. It's got little people and witches and monsters and wizards, and she has no idea how to navigate it. What does she do? But as she steps out and as she moves forward, immediately there are guides and there are teachers that are there to help her and to give her tools or give her weapons or give her gifts that she's going to need if she is to perform the task that she needs to perform on this way. And so she meets Glinda. Glinda gives her the ruby slippers. It's important to note she had those on the entire time. And then they just say, you got to follow the Yellow Brick Road. Go see the wizard. The wizard's going to help you. And as she's traveling, she meets her traveling companions. And it's a scarecrow, and it's a tin man, and it's a lion. But really, these, even though they're presented as characters, this is her own courage, her own intelligence, her own compassion being developed as she goes through this journey and accepts the tasks that she needs to perform. And, of course, the wizard sends her to get the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. And when she comes back with that, after a few foibles, she realizes that she had the power to go back home anytime she wanted with those ruby slippers. And when she finally does get back home to black and white Kansas, looking at the same ring of faces that she's known all along, what does she say? Next time I go looking for my heart's desire, I'm not going to go looking any further than my own backyard. Because if it's not there, I never lost it to begin with. This is the hero's journey. This is the shape of it. Why is it told over and over again? Think, think of, of, of Homer and, and the Odyssey and the Iliad. 
Think of Parsifal in the Holy Grail. Think of Luke Skywalker. Think of Neil in the Matrix. Think of Jesus, who Carl Jung said the shape of his life was an almost perfect map of a human soul. Why is this story always told over and over again? It's told because it's the shape of the human journey, our psychological and spiritual and emotional journeys. And the big one is from birth to death. The child lives in the child's world doesn't know he or she is naked, living in in a world that they understand that is covered by their parents. But what happens when that child breaks out into adulthood? And suddenly it's a new world that they don't understand. There is risk everywhere. They are now responsible for themselves. But if they push forward and they persist, there are teachers and guides that will come and will help them. And there are tasks that they will have to perform. But if they do that, then they can come right back to where they started back to the beginning again. But as T.S. Eliot said, we will know the place for the first time. And we take this circuit, but we don't end up where we are. We're at a different place. That's the big one from birth to death. But the truth is we are constantly doing wheels within wheels, journeys within journeys. Every single time something takes us out of the life that we thought we knew, disrupts the familiarity, the sense of security of what we had, We are starting, or at least we're being called to a hero's journey. We don't have to answer the call if we don't want to. We can camp right at the gates of Eden and just sit there. We can't go back. The way is barred by the angels with the the flaming swords. And if we're too afraid to go forward, we just enter this gray area where we just wait and wait and wait for something to happen. But nothing's happened until we go forward. Every time we experience a loss, what is that loss? It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be the death of a spouse. How much is that going to change your life? It can be the death of a child. How much does that change your life? It can be a friend. It can be anything. It can be a job that you lose. It can be a move that you need to make to a different part of the country or a different part of the world. It can be entering the armed services. It could be leaving the armed services, deployed, brought back home again. Anything that changes. It can be a war that affects everybody, and it can be a pandemic as well. Anything that affects and changes our world, wounds us in some way, is a call to the hero's journey. And if we will accept that and move forward into that new world that we don't understand and everything has changed, the teachers and the guides will show up. The tools and the weapons we need will be provided, and we can complete the task and come back and be this much higher. And so that life is experienced as a spiral, as a corkscrew, ascending through series of cycles within the large one from birth until death. This is the hero's journey. The key to understanding the hero's journey is that our familiar world is lost. It is changed, either pulled from us or destroyed or sabotaged by ourselves because of our own discontent, our own despair over the way things are. How many times have we done that? You know, destroyed our own world because we knew that we'd outgrown it. But we didn't have a chutzpah to take the call when it was first offered to us. It always starts with a wounding. There is always a loss that begins it. And every loss that changes us personally is a call. So, how do we answer the call? And more important, how do we begin to see the shape of the journey? How do we see that we are actually in this journey so that we can make sense of it, so that we can 
give purpose to the pain, and importantly, so that we can see where we are. We can actually map ourselves on this journey, see the milestones along the way. That makes all the difference in terms of how we're going to experience what it is that we're going through. If it's just this big jumble and just this big pain bubble that you're in, how do you make any choices? How do you know that what you're on is a necessary part of your growth to be able to get to someplace you really need to be? This is the problem unless we start to understand and understand this in a way that we can see it in real time as it's happening to us. 2020 is a collective call to a hero's journey for all of us. This pandemic and the lockdown and everything that we've gone through in the first half of this year has taken us quite a ways down the road. It's stripped us of things that are familiar. It has created the pain that is the motivation for us to want to go forward. It has taken away so many of the distractions. It has shown that these institutions that we believed were rock solid are really fragile, and they can topple at a moment's notice. To see the world suddenly, it's kind of like, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. As soon as you see behind the curtain, you can't see the wizard the same anymore. We can't see the world the same anymore. Now, we cannot answer the call, and we can try to crawl back into the womb. We can try to double down and just make things work as they will, as they were. But the truth of the matter is we know. We know it's different. Will we answer the call? Will we enter this new world? Whatever it is, it's still undefined yet. Are we going to be sidelined by our anger, by our resentment, by our depression? The world is changing regardless, and it's calling us along for the ride. It's presenting us with tasks that we need to perform if we are going to actually answer this call. A few weeks ago, I was talking about the Warsaw Ghetto and talk about a hero's journey for those Jews What could have been more wrenching? Think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. You're in your city. You're doing your thing. The bombers come over and bomb your city. The ground troops come in and just occupy your city. And then they take you and they pull you out of your houses. And they force you into a small section of the city that was not yours. Nine to a room. And they starve you. And they won't give you any medical attention. And they beat you. And they put a yellow star on your chest. Talk about complete loss of everything that they thought they knew. But what did they do? The genius of the Jews was not to give up. The genius of the Jews was to carry on with life and to create a complete underground society that was incredible in its complexity and still had the arts and still had beauty and still had religion and philosophy. It had those parts to it that feed the human soul as well as they were feeding their bodies and set up workshops and smuggling rings and everything that they needed to survive. It's an incredible story. And what I had talked about is that they answered the call to their hero's journey. They faced the tasks of those journey in three basic ways. And I think those three basic ways can give us a blueprint for how we can go through our answer to this hero's journey, even though our situation is quite different, not nearly as extreme, of course. But if we can look at these three and apply them to ourselves, we can also then see, are we answering the call in our private lives, in our personal response at all anyway? 
or are we still camped at the gates of Eden? The first one was that they creatively restored what was lost. They did that by creating the hospitals and the kitchens and the smuggling rings and the symphony orchestra and the schools and the synagogues and the ways that they could continue to learn about their faith. But what they were doing was restoring community, restoring structure, and restoring service when it had been stripped from them. Community, structure, and service. You probably heard me rant on about the five things that every person needs, which is community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service. Community, structure, and service are the cornerstones. We need to be accountable to that community. We need to be disciplined to our structure. But that's really what we're talking about here. Think about what you've lost since March. What have you lost in your life? Have you lost community? I'll bet so. I mean, I'm feeling the loss of community right here this morning. You know, we haven't been able, we used to have three meetings a week, sometimes four, where we got to see everybody and we ate food with everybody and we connected and that's not happening anymore. For five months, it seems like forever. We're meeting on Zoom a couple nights a week and that's good, it helps, but it's not the same thing. And the longer this goes, the more I'm feeling personally that disconnection, I'm feeling that loss. Did you used to work outside the home and you're not doing that anymore? Did you go to school? Did your kids go to school? And they're not doing that anymore. And the, the effect on our children is profound. I mean, kids are so dramatic anyway, right? They feel everything at such a, a higher level than we do. Things that we can look at and say, well, it's probably not that bad. It's bad to them. Marion sent me a video of a, of a young schoolgirl, primary, I think, I forget what age she was, eighth grade, ninth grade, something like that, in Canada, who did a video about her emotional state within this pandemic and lockdown. And, and the way that she felt about it was kind of like that silent scream, you know, that, that, that impressionist painting with, well, or the home alone look. But she's feeling that. Is it loss of school? Is it loss of church? Is it loss of your social groups? Is it loss of being able to see your extended family? To do the sports things that you used to do? Yeah, just to be in a crowd and feel that energy again. Think about the structure that you've lost. The day-to-day -day structure of your job that kind of held your day together and held your weeks together. And even though people are working from home now, it's typically unstructured is what I'm finding. They just need to get the work done, but the, the corporation doesn't tell them how to get it done. And so if they aren't really diligent about standing a start to their workday and an end of their workday, it just kind of spreads out and it's all over the place and there's no sense of real anything there to grab onto. There's just that sense that I got to get the work done and maybe the stress of not thinking maybe they have or that it's going to be acceptable because there's so little structure involved in all of this. Serving others. We used to be able to do that. Are we still serving others purposefully? But if you look around, you'll see that people are finding a way. And I'm finding that this lockdown is very different than the one in the first two months when it was strict. 
If I did venture out on the freeway, it was like a ghost town. It was like post-apocalyptic. There was nobody on the freeways. It's crowded now, you know? There were no restaurants anywhere that you could go to. Restaurants are finding a way. They're taking over the parking lot. They're moving onto the sidewalk. They're putting up tents. They're using bales of hay and lattice work and whatever they can find in order to delineate space and keep on going. I had one lady tell me that she gets her hair cut by the black market now. <laughs> that they're underground and, and they're, they're finding ways to connect with their hairdressers so they can still get their, their hair done. I mean, people are finding a way. Life is finding a way. The question is, are you finding a way? Are you restoring what was lost to you personally? Or are you still home and are you angry and stressed and resentful because you haven't been able to find a way to do that. I think more and more people are, but there's so many people so stressed by the loss that they face. Let's face it, what we creatively restore is not going to be the same as what we lost. And we can do two things. We can bemoan that it's different, or we can let it be enough. And we can find ourselves moving into those moments and enjoying them just as much if we really will. Just let it be I'll tell you what, people do three things when they get together. They eat food, they sing songs, and they tell stories. And that's basically all we do. That's all we've ever done. And people are not going to stop doing that, ever. We will find a way to do it. There will be sports events again. There will be stadiums again. There will be concerts again, because that's what people do. Is it going to look exactly the same? No idea. Are we going to accept that and allow that to be enough? That's our task. But what's happening in your personal life, in your home? Are you restoring what is lost? Are you calling people? Are you staying in touch? Are you setting up appointments just to have a cup of coffee? We can do that. There's always a place to have a cup of coffee. Connection, community, structure, are you setting a time that you go to bed and a time that you get up? Are you setting strict times for your work? Not because your boss requires it of you, but because then you know what you are getting up to. You know the shape of your day, and you can be disciplined to it. And when the day comes to an end, you know that you push the ball forward. And you have that same sense of completion that allows you to give yourself permission to goof off the rest of the day or the evening and do it as a restorative practice which is absolutely what we need as well. We need, the task that is being presented to us is to restore what was lost here. Are you doing it? Look at your life honestly and see if there are ways that you can bring back the community and the structure and your ability to serve. Because without that, you will be depressed. You will be stressed. The second thing that they did was to find beauty in the rubble. Now, for most of us, there's not rubble. The streets are still clean. They still look about the same. But can we find beauty in the sense of loss that we have incurred? That's something different. When it comes to this, we're talking about awareness. We're talking about the contemplative way itself. The meditation, the centering prayer that we've talked about for so long, the mindfulness can bring us back to connection with the beauty that is still there, that has never left us if we will just see it again, or maybe for the first time. Do you take walks? Are you taking rides of any kind? Bike rides, motorcycle rides. I have a friend who kayaks. He's, he's kind of jumped on that in the last few months. He takes his kayak out and, and goes, and he actually fishes off that thing, too. It's pretty cool. People are hiking, you know? 
Whatever it is that you can do that gets you out and gets you reconnected is going to be being able to see the beauty again that never left us. But it feels somehow darker. It feels less colorful somehow. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Have you even thought about that before? Do you know where you stand on that spectrum? Because to know that is to know how you're going to recharge. How do you recharge? If you're an introvert, you need to come and be alone in order to recharge. It doesn't mean that you can't do extroverty things. It just means you know where you're going to recharge. And if you're an extrovert, you, need, you know you're going to have to have connection with people in order to re- recharge. Make sure that that's happening. We can do it. You know, the police aren't going to haul you off if you go get a cup of coffee with someone. There are things that we can do to whatever our personality type is that we can do to, again, see the beauty that is still here. Life is still technicolor. Take a look. Turn off the news and go see the beauty that is still there. Remember that the news is always skewed, whatever side of the spectrum you're on. There is really nothing that is just giving us straight news anymore. And it is driving us deeper and deeper into the sense that everything has turned gray, that everything is lost, that we're not ever going to get back what we had before. And you just go out the door and you see the beauty that is still there and you get a whole different picture. Go see it. Recharge. Build that into your structure as well. Don't leave it to chance. Build that into your structure so it's part of your day as well. The third thing that the Jews did was to see God in each other. Do you know how important that is to be able to see God in each other when God seems to be nowhere to be found? His presence completely pulled? What do you think those Jews felt when they were pulled from their homes and forced to live nine, ten to a room? couldn't ply their trades anymore, couldn't make their own money. Where did they think God was at that point? How could God let this happen? How does God allow something like this? How many of us are talking in the same way about what's going on in our lives? I know I'm talking to folks that are feeling exactly the same way, and it's natural. Where is God when things go so wrong, when things get so traumatic, when things are felt as such loss. But if we can still see God in each other, something changes. If you see any good at all, if you see any loving action at all, if you see a person who is willing to put someone else's welfare above their own, you know, that goes against animal instinct. That goes against our our instinct for survival. Where do you think that comes from? It doesn't come from the lizard brain, whatever they talk about back there. That's coming from God. Just like the sun, which is the only source of heat and light in our world, in our solar system, the only source of goodness is from God. And when we see it still displayed in each other, then we know that God is still here and present, even though our circumstances seem to deny it. I remember I was following a big rig truck, you know, one of those huge big like ocean containers, big old thing. And I was right behind him and there was a, <laughs> a line of text on the back of his, of his uh, van. And it said, if you can't see my eyes, I can't see you. 
I want you to think about that for a second. If you can't see my eyes, I can't see you. I had to think about that, and I realized, oh, as I backed up, suddenly his rearview mirrors came into view, and I could see his eyes. You know, it's true. You know, if you can't see someone's eyes, they can't see you. Ever taken a group picture? You know, those big group pictures that are so annoying? If a photographer is good, the photographer is trying to position everybody so that he can see everybody, and everybody's lit. But the truth of the matter is, if you can't see the lens of that camera, you're not in the shot. And if you can't see the light, whatever it happens to be, you're not lit. You want to be a part of that group? You got to see the camera and you got to see the light. If you can't see someone else's eyes, they can't see you. I always love the Karate Kid movie. There's so many applications to life there. But there's one great scene where at the end of their, um, their practice, he says, now you bow. And the Karate Kid bows like this and he slaps him beside the head. Ah! Look, I. Always look, I. And so you bow. Look, I. We've got to look at each other's eyes. We've got to really see each other. You want to see the goodness? You want to see God in each other? Well, look, I. Always look, I. We don't look at each other anymore. We don't spend any time just considering what it is that we have in each other. And maybe this loss that we've experienced of just... Human contact has given us a greater appreciation. Absence really does make the heart grow funda. I actually had a, a coffee with a friend just, just yesterday morning, and we're sitting over at this wonderful place on the other side of the train tracks in San Juan. you got to go there. You feel like you're in another world. And I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to him, and we're talking. But at the same time, I'm also aware of all the people that are coming through the, the uh it's not even a courtyard. It's just dirt and trees, and they have tables and everything. And, and the train is going by, and you know, there's all of this activity. And mothers pushing their children in strollers, and you see that little face there. And they got dogs on leashes who come up and you know, wet your pants and your hands. And then they run up and they apologize and say, no, I love it. It's great. And I'm trying to stay focused on my friend, but I'm aware of all of this life and all of this beauty and just people living their lives. If you can't see God in that, where do you think you're going to see God? I had a friend who asked me, how can I love God? As much as I love my wife, my family, can I love God more than I love my wife and my family? People have told me how much they love God and they seem to have such an emotional content, such an affection for God. How can I possibly get that? And we had this conversation where we were saying, I said, you know what? I've come to the point that I realize that I don't love God directly. I love God by loving each other, by loving the person who's right in front of me. I think John said the same thing in 1 John when he said, anyone who says they love God and hates their brother is a liar. How do we love God directly? Well, I go into prayer mode and I, I centering and, and I meditate. I go to church and I sing songs. Is that really loving God? Is it? When we can take pleasure in just the people around us, when we want their welfare even more than we want our own, when we're willing to be moved to help or at least to smile and to celebrate the things that we see, that's when we're loving God. I don't think God can take any more pleasure in us as he does when we are taking pleasure in each other. 
See God in each other. Celebrate the human condition. Connect in that way. If we can creatively restore what is lost, put back into place, however we can, the things that have been taken away from us in this last five months, find ways to do it. Structure it. Make it happen. Find ways to be of service to other people. If we can still find beauty in the rubble, make ourselves part of the landscape, connect with it, and see God in each face that we encounter, what would that do to transform the experience that you're going through? What would that do in terms of answering the call to the hero's journey that is being called to each and every one of us right now? Those are the tasks. This is the broomstick of the wicked witch to do those things, to answer those tasks. And as you move out, there will be help available. There will be people who will come and help you. You will find them. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. The truth of the matter is, when the student is ready, everything teaches. The teachers are all around us right now, but we don't see them and we don't accept them until we're ready. Be ready. Answer the call. Move into that place. And if we engage these tasks, even the three that I've outlined, we will find, as Richard Rohr so beautifully says, that there are tasks within the tasks and the real meaning and purpose of our lives that, that gives wings to everything that we do is the task within the task. And that task is always connected with just being present and connected to each other. That will always be coming through in everything that we do, whether at work or at play or at social gatherings or at church. We will find that whatever the task that we're doing, what is really going on underneath is that we are more and more deeply connecting to each other. We are more and more understanding that service is really what humanity is all about if we will engage in it, if we will let go and find the humility that allows us to serve in such a deep way. The task within the task will instruct us and take us where we really need to go. And they will allow us, those tasks within the task, to finally embrace the central paradox of life and this paradox is the only way that life can be enjoyed. And there's two things that seem to be in, in tension with each other, but really they work together. And the first is to find full acceptance with the world as it is, the world as it presents in any given moment, this moment right here, right now. Can we do that? Can we let the world be enough? Can we let the world be as it is? and participate without the resistance that usually accompanies. A couple of great paragraphs from the big book. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of people are, 
the lower my serenity is. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations by asking myself, how important is it, really? How important is it compared to my serenity? Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, I do whatever is in front of me to be done, and I leave the results up to him. However it turns out, that's God's will for me. The ability to embrace both the light and the shadow sides of life, to see that the pain and the loss that we are always going to be experiencing at times is also a necessary part of life. It's not evil. It's part of life that needs to be embraced, that needs to be given its due. Any theology, any philosophy, any remedies that we set for ourselves to get through our difficult times that suppress, that repress the shadow sides of life, that don't embrace them, they're unrealistic. And ultimately, they're harmful because they are not allowing us to embrace all of life with all of who we are. Even as we work to improve the circumstances as we find them, to alleviate the suffering that we encounter, we can still embrace the moment as being enough, as being perfect in its own way, and to learn to love all of life. That's the first part of the paradox, accepting the world as it is, but at the same time, expect the suddenlies. Have you heard about that, suddenlies, quote unquote? Suddenly, life can change on a dime. At any instant, at any breath, at any moment, our life can so profoundly change. We don't want to think about that. Even as we accept life as it is, can we still embrace the fact that change is always imminent? Something is always going to change. I've talked on and on about the Hebrew bride. That was her life in between the, the, the betrothal and the marriage accepting her life with her family that she grew up in, everything she's ever known, and taking everything out of it, being completely aware of it, because she knew that at any moment her groom could return and change her life completely and take her away from everything that she knew. Hero's journey, right? To a new world where she didn't know the rules, didn't know the people, was expected to now be the matriarch of the family, the mother of children that were not yet born. To expect that, to look forward to that, to anticipate that, to be excited about that, and at the same time be in full acceptance of where she is right now. This is a central paradox of life. And as we answer these tasks, as we engage in the hero's journey, the tasks within the tasks are making us more and more able to do exactly that, to be able to synthesize this, to bring it together. This is a call to the hero's journey. It's another chance to grow, another chance to meet our purpose. And this is life. This is the way it's constructed. There is no other life. Can we stop waiting for another life that we approve of to come around the corner? Because this is the only life there is, the one that we're in. If we can 
allow that to be, then this life, this world, will be absolutely as beautiful as we decide that it is. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. That's where this call can take us if we'll answer the call for the journey. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it seems as if you've left the building. Sometimes it seems as if your presence is gone and we question everything and we can even despair and feel resentful that we've been left all alone and abandoned. But the truth is, of course, that you're here and you're now. And these circumstances, for some of us that are so difficult and others not so much, they are still part of the plan in some way that we don't understand. Help us to dive in. Help us to answer the call. Help us to energetically see that even the difficulties are another chance for us to grow and find a deeper connection with you and with each other. Help us even to be excited about what we can rebuild within our own lives and with the lives of our communities to find new ways to do old things that feel fresh and allow us to see them as just enough and just as beautiful, even though they're different. And mostly, Lord, help us to see you in every face and everything that we do so that we know that we're not alone and there is purpose in everything that we encounter and everything that we experience. And thank you for taking this journey before us and showing us the way never taking us anywhere that you haven't traveled already and loving us with abandon and reminding us that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you guys all stand? And you at home, stand too. Hey, what the heck?